Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to dive and dig deep into your word, um, enlighten our minds, give us understanding, um, give us your Holy Spirit that we may know you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so um, why don't we do this? I'm going to have you guys all move to the to the table, because I think this might be the class. <laughs> All right. So we're 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 devoting a special class just to the conquest, um, of which judges is sort of the continuation of and and sort of the falter uh, it falters actually, um, and just a review from last week, uh, we saw this story of. God's people, right? The history of redemption is uh, first they're in Egypt um, and then they go into the wilderness and then they conquer the promised land Canaan, right? So let's read the passage, Deuteronomy 7 that describes how and what they are to do. This is, uh, Deuteronomy is Moses' sort of speech his sort of last sermon before they, uh, he dies and before they enter into the promised land um, and he's giving instructions. And actually, these instructions are found throughout Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, And um, this gives a lot of people pause and, and struggle and difficulty, right? And uh, the reason why I wanted to tackle this is because for two reasons. First of all, um, does, this, uh, does this mean that, I mean, is this genocide, right? Is this, um, is this ethnic cleansing, right? And, and we know from the history of America... This has been done in the United States with the Native Americans. This has been done um, whenever the strong swallow and eat the weak. So is this the case of that? And then secondly, a lot of times people cite specifically the conquest of Canaan as one of the reasons why you can't take the Old Testament um, as a whole, right? That uh, people say, well, in the Old Testament, um, you had the wholesale murder of uh, millions of people, so therefore, you can't follow the Old Testament, or you can't um, take it too seriously. I hear that argument all the time. All the time uh, uh, this specific incident of the conquest is cited as the reason why um, uh, you have to pick and choose. You know, you have to have modern discernment about what you're going to accept in the Old Testament. And so I want to show that that's really a bad, obtuse um unfair reading of the uh, of the account right so with all that in mind let's have scott read deuteronomy 7 the first one yeah um when the lord your god brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you the hittites the Gergesites, the amorites the canaanites the perizzites the hivites and the jebusites seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves and when the Lord your God gives them over to you, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Yeah, let me just pause right there. Um, and I underlined the text. You must devote them to complete destruction. And so let's be explicit what that means. That means the deaths of men, uh, not just fighting men, but all men, women, and children. Okay, Everyone. They must be... Com- the, uh, all the Canaanites, the seven Canaanite nations in Canaan, are to be completely and utterly destroyed. Okay, keep going. Um, 
you shall make no covenant with them. Right, so let me just pause right there, right? So you shall make no covenant, meaning if they sue for peace, it doesn't matter, right? Like if it's one thing for the Canaanites to say, oh, you Israelites, I despise you, I'm going to oppose you. But what if the Canaanites say, oh, Israelites, come, enjoy, sit, live with us. Well, there's plenty of land. Why must we fight? Um, there is no suing for peace. You must destroy them. Um, they cannot live peacefully with, with the people. Keep going. Uh, you shall not intermarry with them. Oh, I mean, you, I mean uh, keep going. Uh, sorry, the, the sentence before. You, no. shall, you shall make no covenant. Uh-huh. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Yeah. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away from... They would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash to pieces their pillars, and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. Yeah. No mercy. They say, hey, join us. Oh, there's handouts right there. Uh, you can show them no mercy. You know how, like, in military warfare, like, if they raise their hands... Like, there's no mercy, right? Uh, there's no white flag for them. You can't intermarry with them. Uh, they have to be completely destroyed. Um, and then there are graphic passages <laughs> in Joshua and then in Judges where this happens. Um, and so a lot of people have problems with this. This is perhaps one of the greatest difficulties modern people have with the Bible, specifically the uh, Old Testament. And so people say, isn't this genocide? Genocide is the wholesale wiping out of, uh, of, uh, of an ethnic people. Isn't this mass murder? And uh, I have a little quote for you that uh, I like. Richard Dawkins, writing in The God Delusion. Richard Dawkins is um, an atheist. Um, and uh, he, it's not in your handout, but he, this is what he said, reflecting on passages like these, right? He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filiocidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Um, so, so how shall we respond to Richard Dawkins and others, right? And the other thing, the other issue is, doesn't this give war to the idea of holy war, right? This is an important concept. Um, in modern discourse, holy war has a really negative connotation to it. Because basically there's war, right? There's regular war. I want to kill you, right? We're fighting over something. But then there's another thing, which is holy war, right? Which is religious war, which is basically God is with me. You are against God. We're not just fighting, but this is like you're on the side of evil. And because you're fighting God and I'm on God's side, that gives me a warrant to destroy you, right? I don't have to treat you with decency. Um, we did this with the, uh, again, uh, the Native Americans, right? Uh, we presumed we're, we're uh, the United States, America, we're a Christian nation. The Native Americans are pagans. That gives us a warrant to kill them. This is what the European colonists did. This is what um, Islamists like ISIS does, right? They say, kill the infidel. That's holy war. So isn't this a, a case of holy war? And to compound the problems, doesn't the conquest um, go, isn't it at odds with the New Testament ethic of love? 
right? Uh, Jesus says, love your enemies, don't not. He didn't say utterly destroy your enemies, right? He said, love your enemies. Why aren't the Israelites loving their enemies? Um, so hopefully I've impressed it upon you now, the problem, the difficulty, the rub. And then I'm going to try to solve the rub. Um, it's kind of like a Houdini, right? You see the chains? They're strong, right? <laughs> so now we're, we're, we're going to see if we can wiggle our way out of this. Um, and so here's the answer. I have it uh, in a box. No, I have it bolded. The answer is this. Very, very important. Okay, Canaan, which is the promised land, is a small-scale version of what God will do with the whole earth in the new creation. That's the answer. Okay, Let me read it again. Canaan is a small-scale version of what God will do with the whole earth in the new creation. Okay? So, again, remember the basic storyline of the Bible. Here you have Egypt, and we, said we, should, I, uh, we talked about last week how Egypt is a picture of life and sin, right? And then the wilderness is a picture of what? Who can I pick on? The Christian life. That's right, the Christian life, right? And then the conquest, uh, well, here, and then let me complete the, the story. And so they're supposed to go to the promised land. Which is a picture of new creation. Right? New heavens, new earth. It's a picture of, um, to maybe put it in colloquial terms, heaven, right? Um, so they're going to heaven, but before they get to heaven, there has to be judgment day. So that's what's going on, okay? Um, and so this this sort of a, a grand storyline of salvation <clears throat> is being dramatized in the Old Testament on a small scale. Um, and therefore, the answer isn't this war for holy war? How do you account for all? You know, I mean, is this a repeatable exercise, or is this is this is this sort of a blueprint for how we should act if we find ourselves fighting against pagans? We are Christians. Is this should we open Deuteronomy and read it as a guidebook? And the answer is no, because this is a once in a lifetime or once in a human history. This is. Or, or to put it in theological terms, this is a unique redemptive historical event, never to be repeated again. There's never to be another exodus. There's never to be another building of the temple. There's never to be the ministry and life and uh, uh, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. These are unique redemptive historical events uh, to which in the Old Testament we look at and we learn and has application for us, and we'll talk about what some of them are, um, but we're not to repeat them, right? We're not to draw any lessons from them in the sense that we're not to engage in holy war no more, right? Because Canaan was an utterly unique situation. So if this is the world, right? And, uh, you know, here's the Mediterranean. Um, And this is Canaan, right? What's happening in Canaan it's like a miniaturized version of the new earth. And what God is doing 
in Canaan is utterly unique, and but he's going to do it to the whole world, right? Um, and that's an important point, which is that everything that happens in conquest is going to happen in large scale. It's going to happen um, not just to the Canaanites. It's going to happen to the whole world, right? Uh, which is that there's going to be a final battle, and then evil and injustice is going to be purged from the land. So let's read that. Revelation 21. Uh, if you know, Revelation is the last book of the Bible. It's the end of the story. 21 and 22 are really a unit, the last two chapters of Revelation. And it gives us a picture of what the final reality is, the final um, <clears throat> eternal future is, which is that um, uh, the new Jerusalem comes down, heaven comes down, and earth is remade anew, right? Made afresh. Um, and there's the new heavens and the new earth, right? So let's read what happens in Revelation 21. Theo, can you read that for us? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Your portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Okay. Um, so I just wanted to write it down. This is this is this this explains it, right? Canaan is a picture of new earth. The conquest is a picture of judgment day. And notice. On Judgment Day, evil and and rebellion is is cleansed and purged from the land. Because notice what notice what this new earth, this new creation is going to be. In Revelation twenty one eight, it says, "No cowards, no detestable people, no murderers, no sexually immoral people, no sorcerers, idolaters, or liars." What makes life on earth unbearable? full of corruption, full of injustice. It's evil, sin, injustice. All of that is going to be no more. It has to be, necessarily. If there are liars in the new creation, it'll be a crummy place, right? If there are murderers, how can we live? They must be removed. They must be purged out, right? And therefore, since Canaan, the promised land, is a sort of um, symbolic, you know, down payment, miniaturized version of what's going to happen in Revelation 21, Canaan must also be wiped clean of murderers, liars, you know, adulterers, and so forth. Um, And you see this all throughout uh, the the Bible, right? Um, So Leviticus 18, where are we? Uh, Can you read it? Uh, Victoria, right? Yeah, sorry. Don't make yourself unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nation I'm driving out before you had become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Yeah, so notice, I'm just looking at it right now, I don't know why I underlined what I underlined, but (laughs) what I want to emphasize is that notice how often it says that the land is unclean. Right? It talks about the iniquity of the land, right? So the accent is the is on the immorality of the Canaanites, not their ethnicity, 
right? So this is not a case of ethnic cleansing, um, genocide. It has to do with um, of wiping evil away. Um, and so, again, uh, what's happening in Canaan is a small-scale, miniaturized model version of what's going to happen in Revelation. Because in Revelation, if you read Revelation, there's a lot of violence in Revelation. For example, in, in Revelation chapter 19, you have Christ coming. He's on a horse. There's a sword coming out of his mouth. His robe is drenched with blood. Um, and he's going to lead this army. And he's going to lead this battle. And he's going to defeat all evildoers, right? You mentioned that there will not be any killing then, again. Because this is this one-time historical event. That's right. But then Judgment Day needs to be kind of cleansed. Let me say, say again. Like the Judgment Day, it uh-huh. has to be cleansed. People have to be. So, 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 so the, be. The, the 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 story, the picture, the ideal is this um, in Deuteronomy, is that God's people enter into the Promised Land. They exact Judgment Day, uh, the conquest. They wipe out all the Canaanites. The land is cleansed of evil. The 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 Hebrew people, the Israelites, settle into the land. And it's all beautiful and peaceful and good. But that has to be happen again. I mean, the Judgment Day has to be bloody. That's what I meant. Oh the, yes, judgment, judgment has to happen. Oh, I thought you were asking why does Israel keep fighting? No, no, I okay. meant, I meant you saying okay, don't interpret it as there's gonna be. You guys don't have to be a killer. You don't have to kill. Right, 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 right. As Christian, you don't have right. Right. But Judgment Day will be still be bloody. That's right. So, so here's the thing, right? Uh, in the Old Testament, God's people is a geopolitical state, right? And they are playing out a drama in which the land, the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, must be occupied. It's a picture of heaven. Now the church, the difference between church and Israel is that we are no longer a geopolitical state. We're an international, multi-ethnic organization scattered across the globe. Um, and therefore, the, 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 the means, the tactics of geopolitical states no longer apply to us. We don't have a king. We have a king. He's Jesus. He's enthroned. He sits at the right hand of God. But uh, uh, Jesus is a very unusual king. right? He, he came on a donkey in Jerusalem. So uh, we, don't, we don't employ, for example, armies. There are no Christian armies. But I guess if, if, if Canaan is a, is, an, is a small-scale version of what God will do to the whole earth, yeah. the new creation, then... It's going to happen again. So, so right. that, it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. That's right. It's going to happen again. And so I guess in a, in a sense, we're not supposed to repeat the conquest, the holy war in, in uh, Joshua, Joshua and Judges, except it will happen in the future. But let's wait for the king. Right, but let's wait for a general like, to come. It's not like we Christian against evil. That's right. No. no. We're going to have to kill no, everybody's right. evil. That's right. That's right. So for now, right, uh, there is no more Canaan, right? That was always an object lesson. So now Canaan is nothing to us. Okay, so we don't need to do the crusades to reclaim it from uh, Saladin and the Muslims, right? right. So now we we the the good news goes out throughout the world, but one day it'll 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 it will happen for real. But we need to wait for orders from Jesus, from King Jesus. The, 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 I thought you were asking about why does Israel keep fighting? The answer is Israel keeps fighting largely because of what happens in Judges. And we're going to get to that right, next because, week. Because Judges is basically a failed conquest. It's the story of how the conquest didn't happen. 
not in the way it was supposed to be. Who's the, the chess Oh, yeah. Um, in the New Testament, in, in Ephesians chapter 6, it says, we don't fight against that's right, that's right. blood, but against principalities. And that's right, that's right. We fight against Satan, right? Yeah. Um, forces of evil. So our, our, our battle is a spiritual battle, but it's not always going to be a spiritual battle. It's going to be a physical battle again. Um, so where are we? Okay, so I, there's another concept I wanted to bring up, which is this idea of redemptive violence. So let me just go back to uh, uh, modern people have um, uh, uh, an objection to what's going on in um, in, uh, in, in uh, Joshua and Judges. And uh, I was listening to this very interesting radio interview of Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino makes movies like uh, Django Unchained, uh, Inglorious Bastards, Kill Bill. And um, if you know Quentin Tarantino, what's the sort of defining characteristic of his movies? They're extremely blood, lots of blood, right? Lots of killing, right? And so the interviewer is saying, you know, you, 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 you seem to have this gleefulness about violence, you know, uh, and blood. Why is that? Um, and and then, and then an interview had an astute observation. Uh, she says, I, but I noticed that all of the people who receive this bloody violence are the bad people. In Glorious Bastards, it's the Nazis. Um, in Django Unchained, it's the it's the slavers, right? Uh, it's uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> um, <laughs> And then, uh, so is that, isn't that just an excuse? Isn't that just sort of a cover for you to just do your plaything, which is like you want blood everywhere? And uh, Quentin Tarantino, I thought, had a very good response. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying I endorse and embrace his movies. I'm not saying, you know, we should necessarily have super bloody violent movies, okay? But I thought his answer was really insightful, which is he said, listen, he said, what I'm doing with my movies is I'm, I'm speaking to the human condition because he says all humanity wants and longs for redemptive violence. He says that um, we don't just want violent, we, we, just, we just don't want evil to be reformed um, only, or that evil somehow quietly whisked off stage. He says, we want, he, he says we want retribution, right? We want, we want um, evil to receive its just deserts, which is to be punished and to be destroyed. Right, violently. Um, I think there is something to that. Um, so I, I, I propose that to you with a great deal of caution. But which is that um, the Bible does say redemptive violence is good, but we aren't the ones to do it. It's going to be God who will do who will exactly redemptive violence. So what's happening in the conquest? Uh, Israel is going marching orders from God. So this is why in Deuteronomy chapter seven, as I was saying, the whole my whole thesis is that this is not ethnic cleansing. This is not genocide. This is what? This is um, Judgment Day. This, is, um, this has to do with um, morality. Right? And therefore, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, there's a heavy emphasis on what? Oh, destroy those dirty Canaanites. Oh, with their strange practices and weird you know, cuisine and strange languages. It, you notice there's not an accent on the ethnicity of the Canaanites, but on what? Their idolatry. Look at verse 5 again, right? Where are we? Um, let me read it for you. But, you sh- but thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars. You shall dash in pieces their pillars, chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire. These are idols. So that's the accent of the destruction. Right? And notice why aren't the Canaanites allowed to live? Why aren't you allowed to intermarry with the Canaanites? Why? Because they're going to corrupt you. Right? You marry a pagan... 
their pagan practices and, and beliefs are going to are going to influence you, right? And so there can be no idolatry. There can be no um, pagan worship in Canaan, and so it must be wiped clean. No, before we go on, any questions at this point? All right, good. Yes. Can you explain me one more time about mm-hmm. that idolatry? Idolatry, uh-huh. Yes, a little piece I, I missed. I yeah, so in verse 5, um, they're instructed to specifically destroy the idols. Um, um, so it's not a destruction of a culture per se. Uh, it's not the destruction of an ethnic people per se. It has to do with their idol worship. It has to do with the fact that they don't worship rightly so the one true God, the living God of Israel. So. I have a question. Yes. So why twice? Like, why is he doing this twice? Once back in the Old Testament and one in the future. Ah, so you should have come to the last week's class. Who can tell? Who can? Who can? Who can speak to David's answer a little bit? Because of Baal. That's right. Elaborate. So, all the analogies. So, Egypt, wilderness, conquest, promised land. Yes. Is the bigger right? Life and sin, Christian life, but then ultimately we have the judgment day and promised land. So the the judge. He's preparing the, all the talk about the judges. The book is what happened since it failed. That's because right. Because if it all went through, that's right. We wouldn't be sitting here. That's right. That's right. So but that's then the point. It has a bigger purpose too, is because it now not just Israel, but we as Gentiles now get the benefit. Too. Or, or the specifically, it's now it now now the one true Israelite, it's Jesus. Jesus. Yes. He's going to do it. Okay. So God gives Israel a commission to. Um, uh, dramatize and enact this drama of salvation, in which they're going to enter the, in, in which they're going to enter uh, heaven, right, and salvation, but they fail to do it, and so Jesus is going to do it, and His judgment day, paradoxically, is the cross, right, but it's it's in part, right? He judges our sins. I mean, He's judged for our sins, but one day He'll come back as the judge, um, but that's why it happens twice. The whole Old Testament is a sort of uh, a first run through to pound home the lesson that Israel couldn't do it, that they need a savior, Jesus Christ, um, to do it in their place. Okay. So it really happens three times. Yes, it happens with Adam in the garden. Uh It happens with Israel as the collective Adam in another garden, which would be Cain in the the garden-like land. And it happens with Jesus who is the second Adam, Paul says in Romans chapter 5. So it, it's kind of like, that's why I said it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like the movie um, Sixth Sense, right? You think you're watching a movie, and then at the end you realize the twist, and then you watch it again and you're watching another movie. That's the Bible, I think. You're, you think you're reading a story. It's, it's about Israel and how they, they try, they're trying to get to the land. And then you see the end, and then you realize it's actually about it's about Jesus and how he does it. And everything else was a failed attempt. Adam in the garden was a failure. Israel and Canaan was a failure. All right. So let me just give two basic arguments for uh, addressing again why this is not a, a case of genocide, ethnic cleansing. First is that the conquest was uh, religious and moral, not ethnically based. So the Canaanites were being destroyed, yes, but not because they were Canaanites, but because of their idolatry. Right? I've already said this, but I want to uh, uh, pound this home. So this is not genocide. This is not ethnic cleansing. First of all, because not all the Canaanites were destroyed. 
Okay, it has a very important point. Uh, Joshua chapter 6. Uh, I'm going to have um, uh, Carlos read it, but before we read it, let me just set it up. What happens? Uh, the Rahab, right? So uh, uh, Joshua sends spies to check out, uh, is it Jericho? Yes, Jericho, right? And, um, and then uh, they're sheltered by Rahab. And what happens when Rahab shelters them? It's very, very important. Rahab says, I'm going to shelter you because the Lord, and she uses that word in the English translation. It's a little bit masking what she's actually saying because it's Lord capital, all capital. Who knows what that means when it's Lord all capital? Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God. You never see the covenant name of God on the lips of any pagan. That's That's the personal name that Israel knows God, right? So she knows the Lord. And she says, like, the, this is the Lord's doing. And she says, please spare my family, right? And so Rahab expresses faith and obedience and love to the God of Israel. This is why she's spared, even though she is a Canaanite. In fact, not only is she spared, she's interwoven into the Davidic royal line, and ultimately Jesus' line, right? She, 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 she goes into the genealogy. So, Carlos, can you read Joshua chapter 6, verse 17? Sure. And the city and all that it did within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. That's right. So what is this saying? Joshua is giving instructions, and she's and he's saying, destroy the entire city of Jericho. But does he say, along with Deuteronomy chapter 7, right, com- de- devoted to complete destruction, you shall make no covenant, you shall sow no mercy to them. Is he contradicting Moses' instructions in Deuteronomy chapter 7? No. He is, he is in compliance with it because it was never supposed to be an ethnic destruction. It was always supposed to be a pagan destruction. And because Rahab has converted and confessed the God of Israel, she is no longer a pagan, even though she is ethnically a Canaanite. Does that make sense? In fact, notice, she is a prostitute. So she is an immoral person. She's sexually immoral. But now she repents. She confesses God. And therefore, it doesn't matter what her past is. It doesn't matter if she was a, a Canaanite before. She's ingrafted into Israel, right? Uh, there's another story in Joshua uh, 10 and 11 of the Gibeonites. Does anyone remember the story of the Gibeonites? This is now we're uh, wading into the deep weeds of Bible story. So the Gibeonites are a Canaanite people. They hear about what's going on. They believe in the God of Israel. But, but, but what they decide to do is they decide to trick Joshua. So they dress up in rags. They dress up in like worn shoes. And then they march pretending that they've come from super far away. And then Joshua's like, great, we're going to have a treaty with you. Then they later, the, the ruse is discovered. But this is very important, very interesting. Joshua decides to punish them for their lies by saying, okay, you're going to be woodcutters and you're going to be servants. But he specifically says you're going to be woodcutters and servants for the temple, for the tabernacle. He gives them a really honored place. So the Gibeonites are ingrafted into Israel and they're, and they're, they're, they're made servants of God's house. Um, which is a really honored thing. Why were they spared? Why were they spared? Because they believe in the God of Israel. Okay. Um, was, that, was that disobedience of Joshua to make that treaty with them? Yeah, because the, the specific story is Joshua should have inquired of God. But he just immediately made a snap, rash judgment. Great, you're from far away. You're no threat to us. But if they were trusting in God when, they, when Joshua inquired of God, mm-hmm. 
would God have said? Yeah, I think so. So I think the whole story is basically Joshua and the Gibeonites are just going about it. They're just like crafting things. They're not trusting in God. Um, um, What they should have, Gibeonites should have said, we believe in the God of Israel. Let us join you. And Joshua would have said, Lord, what do you think? And I think that's the, that's the way the story should have gone. It's kind of like um, the story with Joseph and his brothers. Joseph says in the end, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I think that's, that's one of those cases. But why would God spare the Gibeonites? Here are these pagan Gibeonites. Yeah, they, they did a little ruse. Okay, we have to let them in. No, I don't think so. It's because they believe in the God of Israel. They're engrafted into the, the people of Israel. If you le- read later on, Saul, King Saul, he... Because of his own uh, sort of ethnic prejudices, he takes it out on the Gibeonites. He uh, massacres them, and he's severely punished for this, right? Because uh, it doesn't matter that they're not Hebrew blood Israelites; it's that they believe in God. All right, so we're going to go on. So that's the first point. Not all Canaanites were killed. Okay, that's very, very important. That's very, very significant. This is not ethnic cleansing, right? Any Canaanites who converted would be allowed and engrafted into Israel. Secondly, just because you're an Israelite doesn't mean you're going to live. Right? So let me just read the passage. It's a bit long. Deuteronomy 13. This is what uh, Moses says. If your brother, the son of your mother, or the son, or, or your, if, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is your, who is your soul entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods. So what is he saying? He's saying, look, no matter how close this person is, if this person is your wife, this person is your son, your daughter, but this person basically apostatizes uh, and believes in pagan gods and then tries to convert you, entice you, saying, leave the God of Israel, let's go serve other gods, right? Let me read on. Which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are among you, whether near you or far from you, from, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him. Notice the sort of resonance with the same thing in Deuteronomy 7, right? No mercy. You shall not pity him. You shall not spare him, nor shall you conceal him. Listen to verse 9. But you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the land, the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he has sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What is that saying? It doesn't matter if you're a Hebrew or if you're an Israelite. If you, if you go away from the Lord, if you apostatize, then you are like a Canaanite. We must purge you from the land. We must destroy you. Same, same rules apply. Because the new heavens and the new earth cannot have any idolaters, cannot have any evil. Just give me permission to kill my husband if he makes me worship someone else. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, remember this is this is this is a unique redemptive historical event. Okay, no, no applying it. All right. Um. So so that's very important, right? Um. This is why uh, uh, you're not supposed to marry a Canaanite. You know, there there's something called misogynation. Who can tell me what misogynation is? So that's basically when you marry interracial marriage, right? Um, and so a lot of people say, aha, Deuteronomy 7 is proof of it, that it's biblically wrong, it's Christianly wrong to do interracial marriage, right? Because the Israelites were not supposed to marry the Canaanites. Um, that's very an obtuse reading of the Bible. What is being prohibited here? Marrying interfaith marriage is being prohibited. That's right. You cannot marry a pagan. Because notice Rahab was married, right? So... Um, 
Um, so I just wanted to make that point. This is why the story of Solomon is so important. Because what does Solomon do? Solomon marries a whole bunch of, of pagan princesses. He brings them into his house, and then they turn his heart away from the Lord. That's exactly what's going to happen. That's why no interfaith marriage. Um, the second argument I would make is the conquest was not empire building in the traditional sense for three reasons. First, um, empire is usually the strong beating up the weak, right? And then you sort of use religion as sort of the back end justification, right? Like, you know, uh, 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 we're America, here the Native Americans, we're beating them up, and we're a Christian nation, so of course that gives us license. Um, but that's not what's going on, because if you read Deuteronomy 7, the Israelites were, were, were a tiny people. The Canaanites vastly outnumbered the Israelites. The, the Canaanites had superior military technology. They had chariots. So just to dive into a little bit of nerdy ancient military history, um, chariots were the ancient equivalent of tanks because Israelites were foot soldiers, right? And so when you're riding in a heavy chariot, right, um, the chariots would just mow the people over. And then you're in an enclosed box. So you just, you just poke them with your spear or sword. It's, a, it's an incredible weapon, right? Israelites did not have chariots. It's extremely expensive to put out chariots into battle. They had fortified cities. Um, before pre-modern times, um, the ratio to take a fortified position is about three, to, three or four to one. So it takes four people charging into a fortified position to take that one position. So, the, so not only did they outnumber the Israelites, they were in fortified cities, which is an enormous advantage. They had larger armies. This is why, if you read the conquest, it doesn't make any military sense. This is why Napoleon, or nobody reads the nobody reads Joshua and Judges, and let me, let me see if I can learn from battle tactics here. Because it doesn't make any sense, right? Because what happens? How do they take Jericho? They march around with blowing trumpets, right? How does Gideon defeat um, his enemies? Right? He, has this, he has this huge army, multi-10,000 army. He says, you know what? This is too big. Let's, let's pare it down to 300. Good. Now we're ready to fight. So the whole thing is, a, is it's just ridiculous in terms of battle tactics. The whole point is that it's God who's doing the fighting, right? So it's not, this is not the strong beating of the weak. This is not the strong eating the weak. The second thing is empire is exploitation and profiteering. And that's not what's going on here. Because Israel was not to keep any of the plunder. This is very important. And they were not to enslave the population. In a typical empire building, what you do is you conquer the land and you enslave the population. Why? Because then slaves are incredibly valuable. Um, I was uh, 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 listening to an interesting thing on the um, on the Civil War and the lead up to the Civil War, and the uh, the value of the uh, of the black slaves in the South was greater than all the industry in the United States put together. Right, the the heavy industry like railroads and everything, factories which I think is incredible, which basically shows you that slaves are incredibly val- incredibly valuable. But the Israelites were not to enslave the population. They, why? Because even as slaves, you cannot have the new creation have idolaters in the land. They must be wiped out, okay? So no intermarriage, no enslaving, no plunder. So the motivation was not self-enrichment with, but divine judgment. Let me read uh, Joshua 6. This is what he says. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. He's specifically talking about the idols. And idols, you have to understand, we think of idols as, you know, um, like little, little, little wooden statuettes or something like that. But you have to remember that in the ancient world, probably the most expensive thing you owned in your house was an idol. Um, for example, um, uh, is it Rachel? 
or uh, uh, Rebecca. I, I'm forgetting the story now. But when she leaves her father's household, she takes the idol, household idols with her because she's basically looting her father. Because that's like the most expensive thing you, you you had in your house is these idols. It, it took a, a artisanal artisanal craft working, you know, woodworking or whatever, whatnot. They were usually adorned with uh, precious metals and everything. So these were extremely expensive, and Israel was not to keep them or even sell them. They were to destroy them. They were to burn them. Right. Um, where are we? Lest you have, lest when you have devoted them, you take them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So you can't, by the way, you can't try to destroy gold by burning it. You can't. All it does is it melts, right? So, so when you have gold idols, they were to destroy the idol by melting it. But then all of the gold then is deposited into the treasury of the Lord, which will then later be used for the tabernacle and the temple. So no personal enrichment, right? Um, all perishable pagan objects were to be destroyed. Um, no personal gain. This is why in the story of Joshua chapter 7, I'll just summarize it for you, the story of Achan, right? When they try to conquer um, the city, next city, the city of Ai, uh, they find they cannot. The Lord is no longer with them. Why not? Because Achan uh, saw some treasure pagan treasure and he kept it for himself by the way that what would what would that be called in traditional empire building that'd be called loot booty right uh that's the that's that is the standard procedure you cannot withhold booty and loot from your soldiers i mean that's how you motivate them so that's what aiken does he's he, he keeps them for himself and what happens in the end aiken and his entire family just like the canaanites are destroyed because it's an act of apostasy right and he didn't confess himself. He did. He 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 fessed up. But I mean, uh, but he, I I don't think it's a true repentance, oh, right? Because 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 they they basically draw lots, right? So they they narrow it down, narrow it down, and then it's you. What's going on? <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, uh, I haven't. Uh, so are you saying is it is it true repentance? You know, I don't know. I have to think about. I have to read and think about the story more. But my 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 initial gut instinct is it's not. It's a worldly repentance. Like, oh, you caught me. Oh, please, I'm so sad. <laughs> so it's kind of like that, right? Um, oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> the third thing, the third point to keep in mind. So number one, um, it's not the strong beating of the weak. Number, point number two, it's not exploitation and profiteering. Uh, there's no enslavement of the population. Point number three, and this is very important, okay? And this is why um, I think this mitigates a great deal of the rub of the story. Is here you have is right. So this is so this is the land of Israel, right? This land and this land alone does the 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 policy of complete destruction apply. Everything around, like, uh, what would this be? Syria, Phoenicia is right here. This is um, Ammon, Moab. All of the surrounding la- lands, this policy of Deuteronomy chapter 7 of complete destruction does not apply. Very, very important, right? So, for example, um, um, there's, uh, well, we're going to read Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20, but let me just say a little bit more about this. Um, if you read throughout the account in Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges, th- these words continually come up, which is that they were to drive out 
and dispossess. Now, what do those two words imply? Like, what, what do they reveal? What they mean is that death and murder and killing is not ultimately the end of the story. They can also drive out the Canaanites. Because what's the principle? That the Canaanites should die? No, that the land should be holy. So if they could drive out the people, they're spared, in a sense. Right? Um, why? Because, because, because this, this, all of the surrounding land is not the new creation. It's just land. Israel is not supposed to expand its borders and keep marching out to the ends of the earth and build this enormous empire. They're only supposed to stay confined to the promised land, the land that was promised to their forefather Abraham. So this is why if you read Deuteronomy 20, and now we, we don't have time, so, so let me read it to you. This is the instruction Moses gives. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. Now, that's very strange, right? Uh, Moses says, don't make treaties, don't make covenants, show no mercy. Why the exception? Well, read on. Thus you shall do to all the cities, listen, that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here in the land of Canaan. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, Right, the complete destruction, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. So do you see the principle, right? Everything in Canaan is destroyed. Everything outside of Canaan, Israel has no beef. They go to war if they're attacked to defend themselves, but there's no, there's no beef. There's no conflict. They're not seeking to take over Moabite land or, or Ammonite land. And, any questions before we... Yes? It's very specific. Uh, I'm trying to see if it's a recording. Yes, it is very specific. Very specific. So, just like now, they call themselves, you know, people who are fighting in the name of the Lord now. Yeah. In That's right. That's right. So, modern cases of holy war, they never confine themselves to a border. Which they say, we're going to go all the way to the end. Right. That's right. D- David, did you have a question? It has nothing to do with the Bible at this point. Because the drama has already been played out. Because Jesus Christ has come. So there's no need for a geopolitical state, is what I would say. Or a theocracy, right? That's right, or a theocracy in the traditional sense. Did you have a question? Well, I was just wondering, so like, is there an instance where they went to war with like, another country like Syria or something? And then if so, like... Yes, there is. They, they couldn't claim the land after the war, right? No. So like, it would just sit there, like someone else would take it? Or? Um, when you get to David... David begins to um, begins to bring uh, states into uh, the control of Israel, right? Uh, and that's a whole nother long story. We're actually going to get to the life of David later. I'm going to leave it till then. Can you clarify the term geopolitical state? Um, like a nation state. Like so a, Israel. Israel is a nation state, that's right. There's a modern nation state right now that, uh, that Jeff spoke of, but uh, I don't know what that has to do with the Bible. Other than it shares the same name. Okay. Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, we uh, we thank you for the riches of the Bible. And there are certainly portions that are difficult for our uh, modern contemporary culture. But we, we pray 
Lord, that you would help us to be able to understand it and also to be able to think of it and uh, present it in a winsome way to our friends. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.